The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So today I'd like to continue a conversation about what the Buddha said was the, the source, the cause of our struggles, our suffering, our um, feeling that things just aren't quite right. This um, term that the Buddha used for this is dukkha. And the, the term dukkha is almost always translated as suffering, and I certainly use that term a lot when I'm referring to dukkha, but that term of suffering is a little too dramatic at times you know it it seems it seems like we we take that term to mean certain kinds of experiences that are that are more dramatic in our lives we don't necessarily think of just a little bit of frustration as suffering we just think of it as oh i'm a little frustrated but this the little bit of frustration anytime things just feel off or feel like they're they're not they're not quite the way we want them to be that's what the buddha called dukkha and he said that that state of offness, of uh, things not feeling right, is the cause of that is basically our wanting things to be different. It sounds kind of obvious, but um, it's not so obvious because we don't necessarily think of the wanting things to be different as the problem. We think of the fact that the things aren't different is the problem. Um, and that if we could fix the things, if we could arrange the world to suit us, then there wouldn't be a problem. But the Buddha points to this notion of wanting things to be different is actually a trap. It it ensnares us that um, because we want things to be different, we do kind of try to arrange things, change things, fix things, manipulate things in the environment. And um, we sometimes succeed in doing that changing, And uh, for a little while in making that change, we get a kind of a bit of sense of, yeah, things, this is the way to make, this is the way to be happy. If I can make things be the way I want them to be, that's what will make me happy. And um, the, you know, we do get a little bit of happiness there. There is a sense of kind of gratification in the getting what we want, in the having what we want. Um, but there's a kind of a, a, the way that this wanting traps us, there's two, there's two ways that it traps us. One is that, um, you know, we get what we want, and the thing that we have now, whether it's some sense pleasure or sense satisfaction of, you know, seeing something beautiful or tasting something beautiful or having beautiful things surrounding us or getting rid of things that are unbeautiful, um, we get the kind of satisfaction of that pleasantness. But those, that, that satisfaction, the, the, the pleasantness of that, and the, another way we get satisfaction too is by um, being somebody that um, we want to be. Like, you know, being somebody who's respected or being someone who's a success. And sometimes those, um, those depend not only on what we're doing, but on other people's opinions of us. And so we're relying on things that are pretty much out of our control, both in the case where we're, you know, having the satisfaction of the sense experience and the, 
you know, having the, the opinions that other people hold, having them hold the opinions of us that we want them to hold. Not very much in our control either. And so these things that we're relying on for our happiness are not, um, well, they're impermanent, you know. They're, they're not very satisfactory places to rely on as sources for happiness. And so those things, they will tend to go away. They will go away at some point or other. And in that going away, we find that we then want to find something else to uh, create a sense of satisfaction again. And so essentially we kind of end up on a kind of a spiral or a cycle. You know, we, get, we have a feeling of wanting and then we uh, try to get what we want and we have it for a minute and there's that moment of, oh, I've got it, I figured it out. It, things feel good right now. And so there's a moment of kind of relief and a sense of happiness and gratification from that having what we want. But then it goes away. And so we think, well, what else can I want? so that I can have that feeling again. So that's one way that we get caught by this pattern of wanting because it, it tends to perpetuate itself. Um, the other way we get caught is that um, not only does the having of the things that we want make us feel good, but the ending of the wanting actually feels good. And so we, um, we confuse the ending of the wanting with the having of the thing. So, you know, we get, we get some, you know, a new car. So we, we perhaps had this sense of wanting this car. And, you know, we get the, the car and we have the happiness of the having and also the happiness of the ending of the wanting. And we confuse those two. And we think in a way that and so there's, there's a kind of a feeling when the wanting is happening, the feeling of lack, a feeling that things aren't right. But we're not usually, we don't usually pay attention to that feeling of wanting itself. Um, we, we typically, are, our attention is focused out on the thing we want. We're not paying attention to that feeling of lack in and of itself. If we pay attention to that feeling of lack in and of itself, we'll actually see that when we get, well, first, when we get what we want, the feeling of lack goes away. And so there's a kind of a feeling of, oh, yes. You know, that, so, so it, there's, a double, there's a double bind for us when we get what we want. Because we get the thing we want and the wanting goes away. So it's kind of a double hit of goodness for us. Um, but we, we believe what tends to happen for us is that we, we start believing that the only way to happiness, the only way to that kind of sense that things are okay is to get what we want. That both gets rid of this feeling of lack and it gives us some pleasurable experience. So this is all, you know, um, just the kind of natural way that our minds work. It's, it's not just us in this culture, it's everyone on the planet. It's just, it's kind of a it's almost a biological uh, pattern, yet it is not hardwired. 
So we actually do have an option here to explore this wanting, having kind of cycle and, um, and to see where it is that we are actually caught. And one of the things I've seen, and I think I've said this in the last um, couple weeks in talking about this wanting as a kind of the source of our suffering, um, when, when the wanting goes away, the suffering goes away. That it's quite amazing if you actually take the time to explore the feeling of wanting. Wanting, too, is just an impermanent phenomenon. It doesn't last forever. So if you can pay attention to a feeling of wanting, and you know, try this for something simple, you know, not necessarily wanting a new job or, you know, uh, but maybe wanting, um, you know, some particular, some ice cream <laughs> or something, you know. But see if you can pay attention to when that feeling of wanting comes up and the kind of pull to it. And notice what happens when that feeling of wanting goes away. Um, it's just as satisfying to have the feeling of wanting go away as it is to get the thing that you want. Um, in fact, it's even more satisfying in a way because it's, it's not depending on anything outside of us. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a more... Um, it's, l- it's less dependent on conditions to s- watch the wanting fade, watch that wanting go away. And we begin to see then that, that it's not that we need things in the world to be a certain way. It's this feeling of lack, this feeling of wanting that's really at the source of our, of our struggle, of our dissatisfaction. And so I'd like to explore a little bit more about the way the Buddha talked about the, this wanting he had a couple of different ways of, of exploring this. Um, and the, there's, there's, a, there's a teaching called the three kinds of craving, of wanting. This term um, for wanting in the second noble truth is the, the Pali is tanha. And the literal translation of that term means thirst. So it gives you a kind of a sense of the, the, the biological, almost biological connection to this quality of craving. You know, when we're really thirsty, there's, a, there's kind of an imperative. I need to satisfy this thirst. You know, this is not an option. And that's what this craving feels like. It feels like it's not an option. This is, um, you know, this, I have to do this. This is what will bring happiness to my life. So that term, tanha, is often translated as craving. So the Buddha uh, talked about, one in one teaching, he talked about three kinds of craving. And I'd like to explore this a little bit. Um, the first kind, the craving for sense pleasure, that one's kind of obvious to us, and so I will take some time to explore that. The other two are a little more obscure, and um, I was doing so, I've, I've done some exploration of this and some readings, and um, they're not so clear um, what they actually mean, um, I was just looking back into the, the text again to see, you know, well, how does this actually define, you know? So the, there's the other two kinds of craving are said to be the craving for existence and the craving for non-existence. And so I'll explore that a little bit with you in terms of ways that I understand it. Um, the, the, you know, there's, there's not much in the suttas that actually describe what is meant by that 
um, there's a little bit in the commentaries that give a kind of a very narrow definition of it. But So I'll just explore some ways that I see perhaps it working in my own experience, those two kinds of craving, uh, the existence and non-existence. So the craving for sense pleasure, this is kind of clear to us. You know, we like to have pleasant sense experience. And this refers to, um, you know, the pleasant sense experience of our five senses. You know, the seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching. You know, given the option, you'd rather be in a position where there are pleasant sense experience as opposed to unpleasant sense experience. And again, this is very, very um, natural, very normal. Now the Buddha says, or you know, he doesn't say that it's the sense pleasure that's a problem. It's not a problem to have sense pleasure in our lives. The problem is we think we need it in order to be happy. That we think that we cannot be happy unless we have the sense pleasure. And this is a fundamental misunderstanding. Because we can actually be quite happy when we're surrounded by garbage and loud noise and you know, our minds don't have to be rattled by that. So, you know, the, 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 the craving for, you know, this is not okay, I can't be surrounded by garbage and loud noise, you know, that, that kind of agitation of mind is the suffering of that uh, that results from the craving for sense pleasure. So this, um, you know, so there's not particularly a problem with having sense pleasure. I, I think that's something I want to just really make clear because sometimes, you know, the, this hearing, this teaching about craving for sense pleasure leads to suffering. We think that we're supposed to kind of deny ourselves sense pleasure. And that's not what it's saying. It's saying that it's the wanting, it's the thinking that this is the only way I'm going to be happy. I need this to be happy. That is the... The, what leads to our, our, str- our struggles, our suffering, our sense of agitation. So the Buddha had a, a way to explore this um, sense pleasure that I think helps us. Uh, at least for me, I find this teaching very supportive for exploring my relationship to sense pleasure. And he, thought, he talked about three different aspects that we can explore with respect to sense pleasure. And this is you know, kind of a way to, to look at your relationship to sense pleasure. He says, first of all, um, look at the pleasure of the sense pleasure. So it's called the gratification. You know, what is the gratification of that sense pleasure? How good does it make you feel? Um, you know, what's, the, what's that feeling? What's the pleasantness of that sense pleasure? And then he suggests we not just take in the pleasantness of the sense pleasure, but we actually check in and notice how far, this is the terms that he uses, how far does that gratification extend? Essentially, how satisfying is it to have the sense pleasure? So beginning to recognize that this begins to point us to the recognition that the sense pleasure associated with something ends actually more quickly than we, we think. So, you know, having a good cup of coffee or something, you know, so there's the sense pleasure of that coffee. And it, you know, it lasts as long as the coffee lasts, or maybe not even that long. 
You know, it may last one or two sips of that coffee. And then you get involved in something else. And then you're just drinking the coffee and not even noticing the sense pleasure of that coffee. So, you know, how far? How, how pleasurable actually is it? You know, so, so just beginning to notice your relationship to sense pleasure. And, you know, other, other, other things um, in our life, you know, that the, the, how much energy it takes to per, perhaps, you know, search out and find a new, uh, a new car or something. You know, that we, we think, okay, this car is really going to do it for me. You know, I'm going to have to spend less money on gas. It's going to be more fuel efficient. You know, it'll make me look good to all my friends because I've got this new fuel efficient car. And, you know, so we, you know, and we spend a lot of energy picking the car. We spend a lot of energy searching for the car. And, uh, and then we get the car and, you know, maybe a month or so that sense of real happiness lasts. And then it becomes just more like part of the day. You know, it's not, it's not so much... A sense that sense of gratification around having it doesn't last very long. And so then this begins to point us to the danger, the second aspect, the gratification, the danger, and the escape are the three aspects the Buddha asked us to look at. So the gratification for sense pleasure and seeing how far that gratification extends begins to point us to the danger of sense pleasure. And the Buddha had a lot to say about this part. Um, But I think primarily the danger around the sense pleasure is that it traps us into this cycle of the wanting. That's the main, the main, what we could call danger of it. Because, you know, the, that, I've I've seen in my own experience, it's quite interesting, you know. And particularly I see the sitting in front of the computer, you know, the, the Google is like the, um, you know, you get to see craving and wanting um, so easily in that scenario. And I find myself at times sitting in front of the computer trying to think of something to Google so that I can feel good when I get the answer. You know, that is the danger. (laughs) That's the danger of this cycle because we end up, you know, thinking that, you know, we, we, we will create a wanting in order to satisfy the wanting. And, and that, that state of mind, that wanting to want, that's essentially what it is, you know, Google mind. <laughs> that is not a very helpful mind state for us. And it, it is the trap, essentially. And be, it's, it's that confusion that I talked about earlier. It's kind of this misperception around wanting that we, you know, we think it's the getting that makes us happy, but really a lot of it is about the ending of the wanting. And that's the only way we think that we will be happy. And so we find ourselves constructing things to want in order to satisfy that feeling so that feeling will go away. It's a trap. It's a trap for us. So that's the, probably the main danger of this craving around sense pleasures, that it kind of puts us into that cycle and we find ourselves wanting to want. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that the Buddha suggests um, about you know, the, sense, the, 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 the sense pleasure and the danger of sense pleasure. Um, he talks about 
well, okay, so, you know, in order to have sense pleasures, you've got to have something to get them with. You know, you need some kind of money, basically. So, you know, you, you need to work. And what do you do when you work? Well, you, you know, you sit there and... He didn't say this, but, you know, you sit there at the computer and, you know, your, your back gets hunched and your back gets sore and you're, you get carpal tunnel syndrome. And, or, or, you know, you work, you, work um, um, you know, on a contracting project and, you're, you know, you're carrying heavy things and you maybe, you know, strain an arm or, you know, so you've got physical distress because we need to earn the money to buy the things that we want. So the Buddha pointed to that as a danger, you know, that basically, you know, it's, it's just, there's a, we don't typically recognize the suffering that we go through in order to want something to have it. So to just begin to recognize, you know, it's not all, you know, it's not all pleasure. <laughs> there's a lot of struggling that we go through. And then he pointed to, so, okay, um, suppose you want something and you don't get it. Well, then you suffer right off the bat. You know, things are not cool. You know, it's like, okay, I've, I've failed. I'm, I just, you know, I can't do this. Or, or why did that person get that thing and I didn't? So we've got this comparing mind going on. Um, we're not happy when we don't get what we want. So that's another danger of the wanting for sense pleasure. And then he talks about, well, if you get the thing that you want, then you might be worried about somebody coming along and taking it away from you. So we, you know, we, we worry about our possessions, we worry about our, um, you know, that somebody might break into our house, and so we, you know, shore it up with locks and... Um, so there's that aspect of the danger, that we, we have fear around those things that we possess. Fear that somebody might take them from us. Fear that they will just go away. I mean, this is a good, good one with relationship. You know, you have some kind of pleasure in a relationship, and yet there can also be a lot of fear, jealousy, envy that is enmeshed in that relationship because of the fear that it will go away. And he goes on, I won't go on with various other kinds of dangers with respect to the having of the sense pleasures, but he does point, he basically points to you know, the kind of societal dangers of uh, wanting, that, that this triggers you know, um, quarrels between family members, it, it can trigger um, you know, political party disputes, it can, it can trigger war based on wanting to have sense pleasure. I mean, you know, just think about oil, you know. The oil is kind of a thing that produces a lot of things that we find pleasure in. And the whole uh, struggle of war and uh, kidnapping and terrorism that has come out of wanting oil. So he points even to the kind of societal dangers of this trap that we're in with wanting sense pleasure. So the escape that he says is letting go of the wanting. And that that is our practice. It's not, it's not that we have to cut sense pleasure out of our lives. We have to have a more um, 
wholesome relationship with sense pleasure. When it's present, appreciating it, enjoying it. When it's absent, being balanced around that. When it comes, it's, pre- it, it's, it's okay. When it goes, it's okay. The, the way towards that okayness around things coming and going is to work with the letting go of the wanting of that feeling that this is the source. This is what's going to make me happy. So that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's not an easy thing to do. It is quite deeply ingrained in us to believe that having what we want will make us happy. It's, it's very much reinforced by our culture. So that's what he says is the escape. And you can begin to explore this in just the simple way that I talked about before of uh, noticing that feeling of lack, watching it, exploring it with mindfulness, turning towards the feeling of lack itself as opposed to focusing on the thing that you don't have in the environment, whether it's something you want to keep or something to get rid of. Turning towards that feeling of lack itself, exploring that. Being mindful of it, exploring what does it feel like in the body? How does the mind feel agitated around it? And then noticing how long that lasts actually when you just explore it with mindfulness. And when it goes away, what happens? So just exploring that, you can begin to get a taste for what that escape means that letting go of that, of that wanting. Hmm. So I've talked for a while, but I do, let's see. Let me just see if there's any comments or questions about what I've said. And we'll move on to the other uh, aspects of craving in a moment. Yeah, why don't you pass the mic back? That's okay, silly questions are welcome. Thank um. you. I feel, you know, instinctively that you're right, because <laughs> you know I've lived through these things, but and am still living through them. But how would we ever um, progress, you know, as a nation or as an individual or as a people or anything, if we didn't have this sort of uh, wanting things to be different, working for it? Mm-hmm. Maybe not work, get, not working out or anything, but just in that bumbling along, it seems like there is something called human progress. Um, so there's different different kinds of there's different different motivations for wanting to act um, or for you know doing something. There's different motivations for that. And this, um, this craving that I'm talking about is um, the motivation there is basically, it's based in delusion because there's this sense that happiness depends on this getting what I want. So, but there's also a way to think about, and it also, that, that this craving that I'm talking about also depends on a kind of a sense of, of greed, of, of wanting to accumulate things, or of aversion, wanting to get rid of things. But it's fundamentally based in this delusion that it's the having what I want that will be the way towards happiness. Um, 
there's, there's other reasons or ways or motivations to act. Compassion, for instance. So, you know, think about um, a motivation perhaps for developing a vaccine. You know, that motivation might, you know, there, there could be a sense of, there could be a sense of delusion behind that, you know, um, that this is what's going to make me happy. I'm going to develop this vaccine and I'm going to get all this status and reward and wealth from having developed this vaccine. So there could be some delusion behind that. But it also could be that there's a sense of seeing the suffering of the world and wanting to act to respond to that. So uh, that's a different motivation. So the, it's possible to progress, to move, um, to alleviate suffering from a, a, a beautiful opening of heart as opposed to a contraction of heart. So I think that the craving is really talking about you know, the contracted heart, the needing to kind of acquire, accumulate, you know, protect, defend, and the, um, the action based on that non-craving is much more open-hearted. It's much more willing to accept kind of whatever's coming in experience, but still trying to act to alleviate that suffering. Um, you know, there's another question that's kind of in the air in, in what you say, and, and that is, you know, the notion of, of right and wrong, um, um, you know, in terms of, you know, justice and injustice in a way. Um, and you know, so it's kind of like what what you know, don't we want to you know punish those people that have done wrong, you know, people who've murdered or raped or you know, don't we don't we isn't it right to be angry at them and to punish them for doing wrong? There's also the notion of acting out of compassion to prevent them from taking action like that in the future. That it's a compassionate action towards them to prevent them from taking that kind of an action in the future. It's a compassionate action towards others to separate that person from other people, to put them in jail. Um, You know, one thing that kind of occurred to me as a way to phrase this recently is that compassion doesn't have anything to do, so that quality of heart that wants to act to alleviate suffering doesn't have anything to do with right or wrong. Compassion responds to suffering. It doesn't respond to right and wrong. So that, that compassion is actually a great motivator. It, 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 it almost demands us to act. And in fact, it's interesting, um, the, the, the Dalai Lama offered some of his monks for uh, neuropsychological research. And um, um, they found when they were, they asked these monks to do compassion practice, to see what, what happened in their brain when they did compassion practice. And it, it, it um, kind of made all of the areas of the brain that respond to, um, um, you know, it's kind of like, it, 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 it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's an area of the brain that that is connected with 
beautiful action, beautiful qualities. It also it, it, it activated those areas of the brain for action. So that, you know, so that the, the sense of compassion isn't a laid-back feeling. It, it almost demands action. When we meet suffering and our heart is open, it's like action follows, if possible. I mean, if it's possible to act, to alleviate suffering, that, that happens. So there's a completely different approach to action. And we don't, you know, we don't, we don't trust it or we don't believe it. Um, you know, because we, we're just so enmeshed in this notion of wanting that we think that's the only way. So it's really an exploration of, of alternate uh, motivations. Thank you. That, that's very good. <laughs> uh, it, it reminded me of, in the movie Zorba the Greek, when that woman was going to be stoned, I, probably everybody's seen, that's a very old movie, but anyhow, this woman is going to be stoned as an adulteress, and he does everything he can to defend her and help her, but he's overwhelmed by all these rocks coming mm-hmm. at her. Mm-hmm. And when that's over, and she is obviously dead, he doesn't have any hatred toward these people. Mm-hmm. You know, he just goes his way, and... Um, full of compassion. And I always thought uh, that was so beautiful. You know, mm. just the, the energy was not going to be reprisal. Yes. The in- energy was to try to save and, and do what he could and then yeah. continue on with compassion. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, over here. Could you use the mic? Yeah. I'm just curious about the idea about um, being competitive. I mean, there's no way, I don't think, especially in today's world, you're going to get anywhere without being competitive. And there is a bit of selfishness in that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of selfishness in that, actually. Um, but it could be potentially very good. I mean, you could be a person from a, you know, a situation where you're... Um, underprivileged, you may not have enough money or you may not come from a, a family that has a lot of money, but your goal is to have a great education so you can afford that kind of lifestyle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that is a good thing, right? Well, or I, mean, I guess that's a judgment I'm calling, but I'm just saying... Yeah, I mean, I think to, it's an exploration that, that we can make. Um, you know, the, the competitiveness itself, if you look at that competitiveness, I think you'll find there's probably some struggle, some suffering in that very competitiveness. I know I suffered from that a lot as a child. I, you know, I had to be better than everybody. And I suffered a lot in that. Um, you know, so it, there's some aspects of what you're pointing to that are wholesome. You know, the, the, the desire to elevate the mind, to, um, you know, to, to learn, to be able to contribute... And there's some aspects that, that may be not so helpful. And so I think in almost everything that we do, there are mixed motivations. And so to begin to kind of tease apart, you know, what are the helpful aspects of this sense of competitiveness? You know, maybe that sense of, of you know, um, curiosity of understanding and, um, 
you know, the, just the, the wanting to learn, the expanding of the mind, those that, that if there's a little bit of that in the competitiveness or if there's a portion of that, those parts are, are perhaps helpful. But the, the sense of wanting to have to exclude from others, that may not be so helpful. So that, you know, looking at the mixed, the mixed quality of that and, and a way to look at that in your own experience is to explore what feels good, I mean, what feels helpful, what feels supportive, um, and what feels off, what feels contracted, what feels defended, um, what feels fearful, and, and begin to explore which aspects are helpful and which aspects we can actually perhaps let go of. I think that there is, there is a view of needing to you know, be a certain way in order to get ahead in the world. And there may be some, some truth to that. I mean, I know certainly uh, when I was in the business world that, you know, it wasn't possible to pause before speaking. <laughs> you know, you're not going to ever say anything in a business meeting that way. <laughs> but we can be mindful of... Um, you know, what's my intention? What's my, what's, am I going to speak harshly? Am I going to, you know, you know, put somebody down? Or am I going to try to be um, in a way that, acting in a way that's going to be cooperative and um, helpful to the group as a whole? So it's just, it, it's really an exploration just to, to look at that. Yeah, thank you. It, it seems like this, Teaching may, it, it's an oversimplification, surely, but it seems like it's, we, conf, we often confuse our liking for our needing. Yes. Um, I you think know, I, the word thirst really struck me or when you mentioned that. Um, if I like ice cream, but I act as if I thirst for it, that is, as if it were necessary for life. That's I'm a, way out of bounds. Yes, <laughs> yes. So that's a great exploration to make. You know, so there's a distinction in, in effect. You know, that things, there are things we like, and the actual, the liking is a kind of a subtler version of that wanting. You know? uh, it can easily tip into that wanting. Um, you know, that, but, but liking itself, you, know, you can have a, a sense of liking something and not having a sense that I need it. You know, it, I have to have this for happiness. You know, it's, it's more like, yeah, if that's available, thank you, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, um, so that that liking, we, so there's that, that sense of, you know, we have certain preferences and if that's possible, you know, you know yes, I'll choose X over Y. Um, but to have the sense that it's necessary, that's where it more tips into the craving. Um, you know, and, and to explore um, when that liking begins to move in that direction. And it can be a subtle, it's like a slippery slope. <laughs> it is a slippery slope. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'll say a few, a few words about these other two kinds of, of craving. The craving for existence, the craving for non-existence. Keep my track of my time here. Um, so the, as I said, the, the, the Buddhist texts don't say much about what they mean. Um, one of the commentaries points to 
kind of more metaphysical almost or you know kind of the craving the craving for future existence in heavenly realms or uh, as being the craving for existence or the craving for non-existence for essentially the annihilation of being you know that just get me out of here you know don't want to be here anymore I think, you know, suicide has that quality to it, that somebody who is craving for non-existence um, has that sense of, you know, just get me out of here. So that, that, that um, kind of one of the definitions. Another definition in terms of the craving for existence, um, they talk about the craving for pleasurable mental meditative experiences. Um, you know, the, the, the states of concentration the various states of concentration. So that's how it's been defined in the commentaries. But as Bhikkhu Bodhi, I just noticed, um, I've been kind of looking through this to see, is there anything, you know, more, you know, tangible or more connected to what we experience day to day that connects to these teachings on the craving for existence and non-existence? And Bhikkhu Bodhi says that his opinion is that uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is a translator for the suttas. Um, he's done a lot of research, a lot of exploration of these terms. And, and he says, in his opinion, the, 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 that definition that I just gave from the commentaries um, is pretty narrow. And I think it is too. Um, you know, it's like we've got the sense world experience, the craving for senses, the sense pleasures, which is what is defined by that is the craving for our five physical pleasure at the five physical sense bases. Seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching. We also crave for pleasurable mental experience. We want to be happy. We want to be, um, um, have a certain sense of status, perhaps. We want to feel respected. So there are things that we uh, crave that are in the realm of the mind. And this is where I kind of take um, the craving for existence, kind of in the realm of craving for wanting to be a certain kind of person, um, you know, to have a certain um, status or respect or a sense of success, a feeling of being a good person, something like that. That we, we crave that. We, we feel, you know, like my, I'm, not, I'm not okay unless I'm a, a, a success. This may point a little bit to this, the competition kind of thing, you know, that that's partly where that competition, that no, notion for competition comes from. So I need to have this feeling of success in order to feel okay about myself. Um, then there's the other side of that, of you know things that we don't want to have in our mental experience. We don't want to feel like a, fa- a failure. We don't want to be dismissed. We don't want to feel like people don't respect us. This is, in a sense, a craving for the non-existence of those. If we, if we are in a space where we feel like we're a failure, there's a craving for that feeling to go away. Um, so there's, there's kind of this, what, what I think this is pointing to a little bit is, has to do with identification with um, particular states of mind. And so we might, just, I'll just take it with one I'm really familiar with. 
the feeling of success and the feeling of failure. Like, and this even manifests manifests in meditation itself. The, the, you know, we, we in our in our mindfulness practice and our meditation practice, we carry all our habits from our life right into the practice. And so I had this pattern around, you know, feeling like I'm a success or failure in my work life, and then I bring it right into meditation. Am I a success or a failure as a meditator? So, you know, the, this, this exploration around success and failure has been one that I've explored quite a bit. And, and there's a sense of identification of when there's a feeling of success. It's like, yes, this feels good. You know, this feels right. This is what makes me happy to feel like I'm doing it right, to feel like I'm successful. So that, that identification there, there's that craving for that identification, that craving for that existence of that identi- identity. That's how I want to live my life, continually in the state of feeling like I'm a success, doing it right. And yet it's not possible to live that way. And so there are times when I don't feel like a success. I don't feel like I'm doing it right. I can't possibly feel like I can be mindful to save my life. I feel like a failure. So there's an identification with that feeling, in effect. You know, I feel like a failure. I want that feeling to go away. The way I feel that I can make that feeling go away is to transform myself into someone who's a success. So there's this flip-flopping between these two identities. And I feel either like I'm a success, and that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, the, the, the goal in life is to have that identity completely get rid of this other identity. And what I've seen in my own experience is that having this identity of being a success, especially if it's a strong identification, means that there is bound to be the opposite that sense of being a failure. So the, the thing that I finally began to realize, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it was a problem when I felt like I was a failure. It's like, okay, I really paid attention to that. What's this feeling of being a failure? You know, what is this? Um, and, you know, so there's, there was that exploration of that side of it. But at some point I really began to see the, just the, the, the complete linkage between those two identities, those two identifications. And that essentially the stronger identification was really around being a success. That's where I was hooking my happiness to. And um, it was that identification that made possible the feeling that I was a failure. If it hadn't been for that strong identification with feeling like a success, there wouldn't have even been the possibility to be a failure. So when I recognized that they were linked, those two senses, and this is again, thinking about the craving for existence, non-existence, the craving for the existence of this feeling of success, craving for non-existence of this feeling of failure. And the Buddha basically says, you know, go right in the middle. He says, don't, you know, existence, non-existence, this is a confusion. This is mostly what people do, is they, they live their lives bouncing between existence and non-existence. And there's a, a kind of a middle way between those two. And the middle way that I discovered between those two was, first of all, to begin to actually notice this identification and the neediness around being a success. 
So to turn towards that, to actually see the unsatisfactoriness of that neediness around being a success. When I noticed that and began to, you know, that part began to fall away, the other side just began to to wither. It's kind of like just going right down the middle. You know, we don't actually need either identity. We act in our lives. Sometimes things happen in a way that um, feels like we are able to contribute. Other times we act in a way that feels like we're not able to contribute. There's no need to identify with one or the other. So the identification is, I think, what this is pointing to, this craving for existence and non-existence. It's a craving to be some kind of person. And, or not to be some kind of a person. So that's how I understand this kind of more uh, obscure side of this teaching around the craving for existence and non-existence. And now it's time to stop, so there's unfortunately no time for questions around that one, but maybe next week we can, we can talk about that a little bit. So thank you all.